Let's pray together. Father, it's a treat to come together to worship you. It's a treat to come into this sanctuary and to be out of that world for just a few minutes. And for us to focus, Lord, not on the things of the world, but on you who created this world. How quickly we lose our perspective as we are inundated with the things all around us. And you, by design, have called us to come together and to worship together publicly to regain that perspective and to be encouraged, dear God, to walk with you and talk with you and to allow your Spirit to be with us. Father, there are a lot of times this past week, I'm sure that each of us have not done that. That we've walked in the flesh and resisted your spirit. That we have once again tried to take control of our own lives and make things work the way we want. That we've even insisted, Lord, that you come bless us. That we might have or do what we have set as a goal. I thank you, you do not always do that. I thank you, you always do what's best for us. And I thank you, dear Father, that you provided a solution to that sin at a very high cost through the shed blood of your own Son, Jesus. We are forgiven people. But Father, it's so important that we call out and ask for that forgiveness. And that we cherish what you have given us as a gift. I thank you for that forgiveness. I thank you, Lord, that while there are a lot of things going on in our country that are disconcerting and a lot of things that really sadden us, I thank you that you've not given up on us. You, dear God, are the one who created this land as you have other lands. And you're the one throughout the history of our country that has worked with us and brought people to faith and providentially ordered the things that would happen in the history of our country. And you're doing that at this very moment, Lord. You're not thwarted by human decisions. You're not even thwarted by Satan. And I thank you that you are a God who is absolutely working his purpose out. And you're doing that in our country, and you're doing that in our world, and more specifically, Lord, you're doing that in our lives. I thank you, Father, that you're the one who's prepared to move on those in our executive and judicial and legislative branches of our government. I thank you, Lord, that you can penetrate the highest office and executive suites of the largest businesses in this country. I thank you, Lord, that you're not blocked from touching any person or any group of people. And we pray, dear God, for a renewal in our land. We pray that you would bring people to yourself. 
and that we would call out on you and ask you to be our God, and that we would repent of the sin of our life and turn from that sin, and that you, dear God, as you've told us in Scripture, would then bless our land. I pray for us, Father, passionately, and ask for your help. Father, there are a lot of people this very moment who are in uniforms all around the world serving our country. I pray for them and lift them up to you. Some of them are in harm's way. Others are just separated from the people they love. I pray for your peace and for your comfort. Dear God, every time we come together to worship you, there are those who are troubled by things that are happening in our own lives or in the lives of people that we love. Give us a peace, Lord, a peace that's beyond any human understanding. Give us an assurance that you're with us and that you're allowing us to be with you. And let that peace influence every moment of our life. Father, I thank you for what you do in our church. I thank you for our ministry and for those that you have placed in leadership. And we pray for them this morning, dear God, as we pray for our church. And ask that you would continue to use us in this community and throughout the world. And then very selfishly, Lord, I ask that you would draw us even closer to you. That we might walk in lockstep with you. That we might go where you want us to go. And that we might do the very things you want us to do. Bless us, I pray as we give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the fifth chapter, and we're going to start this morning with the 21st verse and study through the 24th. Matthew 5, 21 through 24. I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew rack. If there's not one in the pew rack, just reach over and grab hold of the one next to you that somebody else is holding. And they'll be glad to share it with you. If they don't, please take it from them. With a smile. I want you to keep your Bibles open as I work through the passage, and that's why I'd like you to have a copy in front of you. And I want you to look at the words, the verbiage, at the phrases, and see why God is saying what he's saying. Before we study the passage, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to your word needing your help. We need you, dear God, to open this up for us and help us to understand it. We need, O oh Lord, for you to guide my words that they might be true and that they might ring true to other people. And I pray when we have completed this time together with you in your word that we'd be able to take this message home and live it out day by day. I thank you in advance for what you're about to do, dear God through the power of your Holy Spirit and because of your love and your grace. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. The words I'm going to read in a moment come from the Sermon on the Mount. 
reminder to you that on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, there's ever-increasing hills that build into a mound. And Jesus had been down on the seashore. He was talking with his disciples. A large crowd gathered around. You remember the narrative. He made his way up on top of the mound so more people could get around him. And once he got up there, he began to teach first his disciples. Just imagine, he had three and a half years. We have more time than that with our own children. He had three and a half years to instruct them and to hand off the leadership of the church that you and I are now a part of. So this was pretty precious time. And as our Lord taught, he taught the things that he felt were really essential to their spiritual well-being and to the future of the church. He talked about attitude of heart over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think the reason he did that is perfectly clear from Scripture. I think he cared so much about us that he wanted the quality of our life to be good. And the way the quality of our life improves is when you and I conform ourselves to the biblical examples we have of how we're to live. And when that happens, the Spirit of God has the freedom to work in us and to work in the lives of those that we love the most. So Jesus talks about our heart attitude. I think there's another reason he taught most of this, and that is that as he would speak, he knew they were going to be the witnesses in the years to come. And you know, if you don't live right, People don't look to you as a positive role model. And I think what Jesus was doing was saying, let me address the issues of your heart. And let me help you so that you will be an attractive witness. And so other people will seek you out and want to understand what it is that motivates you and what it is that drives you. If you look over into Revelation 2:23 talks about the church at Thyatira. Oh my goodness, the church at Thyatira. And a wonderful insight is given. And the insight is this: that God searches the hearts and the minds of all of us. He knows who we are, what's going on in here, what's going on in here. And when he talks to us, it's in that framework. And that's what he's doing today. He knows what's in your heart and your mind as he does in what's in my heart and mind. And this is for us. Just for us. I want you to listen very carefully as I read his words. From Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. 
Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. The passage is all about reconciliation. That's what Jesus was all about. He came to reconcile us to God. And he did that at a pretty high cost. He suffered and he died to accomplish that. And now he's given that same ministry, Paul tells us, that we are to be ministers of reconciliation. And that reconciliation starts as close to home as you can get. People in our own families. And it gradually expands in concentric circles until it touches everyone that you come in contact with. He wants us to be reconciled. So as I'm moving through the passage, I want you to think about people that you're not reconciled with. And let the Holy Spirit flush that out for you. In verse 21, the statement is made, What you have heard, that the ancients were told. And then he gives a quote, you shall not commit murder. We know where that comes from, don't we? That comes from one of the commandments. The Lord said, you shall not murder. Jesus is not questioning that. He said, I did not come to change anything that has already been said. He came to clarify and to add, but only in the sense of divine revelation. So, what is he saying? You have heard that the ancients were told. You know who the ancients were? He's not talking about Moses. He's not talking about the great lawgiver. He's talking about the rabbis who've come through the generations. And he said to those who were listening to him, you have heard that those rabbis throughout the generations have heard about this commandment. Well, when we get to the 22nd verse, he's going to challenge not the commandment, but what the rabbis have been teaching. Interesting thing. The ancients did something that has been going on ever since. The ancients, the rabbis, would take the word of God and they would begin to expound it and teach it. And then somehow what they said and what they thought took precedent over the Word of God. And before long, people like the Pharisees, who were well-intentioned, godly people in the beginning, generations later, they were expounding their own thoughts and their own feelings, and Scripture was being suppressed. Now... That may have been the first time that happened in New Testament time. It has happened over and over again. It has been said that if you look back at the time of the Reformation, that the primary reason the Reformers stood up and tried to get their denomination, the Roman Catholic Church, to repent of some sins and change the way they were doing business is because they felt the church had drifted from Scripture. 
The end result was that the Reformers created a new denomination. And then out of that grew a whole number of denominations of which we are part. In an effort to get back to the teaching of the Bible. And if you look at the Protestant movement just in our country in the last several hundred years, there has been division after division. And if you look at the root cause, it's because the leaders of denominations have begun to drift away from the teaching of Scripture and have taken the church somewhere that God never ordained for it to go. That is why in 1973, our denomination came into existence. For that very reason. To get us back to the Bible. Back to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And I want to wave a red flag. After I'm gone, I hope, from this earth, you better watch our denominations. Better watch all denominations. We human beings try to take control. And when we do, we go places we should not go. And we get away from the scriptures. And what the Jewish rabbis did is the Jewish rabbis started teaching things like the Ten Commandments. And when they would teach a commandment, like the commandment that we are not to kill, they would somehow make that a legal kind of statement. And they would never get at the source of why people have an attitude that causes them to want to kill. Instead, it just became one of performance. Do what we tell you and everything will be okay. Instead of scratching away at the cause of the problem. Genesis, the ninth chapter, says very clearly that if someone takes the life of another person, that the person who committed that crime should lose their life. And then gives an explanation of why. It says the reason is that God created the one that you have killed. And you have offended God. Well, you don't hear that very much, do you? Does that mean that we're not allowed to go to war? No. The Westminster Divines in our confessional statement this morning reminded us from the 1500s, the church has never said you can't go to war if you are commanded to do so. Does that mean you cannot do capital punishment? No, that's not what that means. What that means is that you and I as individuals do not have the authority to take the life of another person. Not of another person, not of an unborn child, not of ourselves. God is displeased when we do that. Why? Because He created those children and those people and us in His own likeness. And for us to violate them, and to take their life by murder is for us to offend God. And our country has forgotten that. And folks, we need to be reminded of that. So, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you've heard the teachings of the rabbis, and what he's really about to say is, and they've hung a right, and they've gone off on a tangent, and they're saying, if you want a really good relationship with God, you just have to be obedient. And it all becomes performance-based. 
And you know the tragedy of that? We have translated that into action in our own families. And if you look at the relationship of lots of moms and dads to their own kids, what you will see is we've said to our children, I'll love you as long as you do what I want you to do. And some of us were raised in those kind of homes. Folks, that is not love. That is eros, the Greek word, for a performance-based relationship. And that is not what our Bible teaches us about love. Not parental love, not the love between brothers and sisters, not the love between those of us who are Christians. It's supposed to be based on not performance, but on grace and forgiveness and mercy. So, Jesus is going to take some real exception with what the rabbis have taught. If you look on down in the 22nd verse, Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Argizo, the Greek word for anger, is an interesting word. You know, the Bible doesn't teach that you can't get angry. God got angry. We read it in our Sunday school class this morning, that he got angry and somebody died as a result of it. It's not the getting angry that is the sin. It's what we do with that emotion. The Greek word that's used here means to harbor feelings, to be resentful and to want revenge, and for that to linger in us. And when it lingers in us, folks, it takes on a life of its own. And it becomes oftentimes almost irresolvable. And what happens very often when we have that kind of anger toward another person, our heart gets hard. Amazingly, a lot of times the other person doesn't even know we're angry. And we just sort of burn up on the inside until most of us has died. And there's just the shell of a person. That is not what God wants. That's why Jesus is addressing the issue. So he says to us, I don't want you to be angry. I don't want you to have that resentment toward other people. Okay, did I get anybody's attention? You got somebody like that in your life? You got somebody you just haven't gotten it resolved and don't even want to? What you really want to do is just walk over and kick the wall as hard as you can because you're still angry. You need to leave that here today. You need to get healed of that and be forgiven of it because it absolutely is not what God wants. I had someone bring this date set, a cassette tape to me one time and said, you need to listen to this. And I sat down and I listened. And it was a preacher who is still preaching to this day because I checked to see. He's an evangelist. He uses that title. And in a sermon that he was preaching, he said to the congregation that was gathered, if somebody offends you, you have a right to get even. Well, that man went to jail for burning someone's house down. He got even. And the court's got even with him. 
But he's back out preaching today, teaching something that is absolutely contrary to what Jesus said. Jesus wants us to forgive, and he wants us to forget. 1 John 3.15 is one of those verses that we just kind of want to say, well, it's not there. It says if you hate your brother, it's the same thing as murder. And there is a prohibition against us murdering. So doesn't that mean there's a prohibition against us hating? Against us harboring anger towards somebody? Be good to yourself, folks. Use this as an opportunity for that healing. Jesus goes on and talks about different levels of anger. He talks about raka, which means to slander somebody. You know what slandering is. Slandering is when you say something about somebody, and it certainly may not even be true, and they have no way to defend themselves. You just talk about them. You talk about them to their back. You talk about them with other people. And you tear that person down for whatever psychological or spiritual reason you have. And the Lord is saying, that's one degree of sin. I don't want you to do it. You know, if some folks were to repent of that sin, of Raqqa, and stop talking about other people, they wouldn't have very much to say. You understand? Some people just major in talking about other people and slandering them. And God is saying, that's not how we're going to be family. That's not how we're going to have unity. That's not how we're going to love each other and care about each other. So I don't want you to do that. And then he goes to the next level of anger. The Greek word romos, which means simply somebody who's not very bright. To say to somebody, you're a moron, where we get the English word. To say to somebody, you're not very smart. And to tear them down, which has an effect on them and has an effect on other people who hear about it. You know what the Lord is saying to us? I want you to be good to each other. I want you to be gentle with each other. I want you, I think I heard this, to treat other people like you want to be treated. I want you to have some boundaries in what you say. Not because you have to because of the law of the land, but because it's what pleases God, who has forgiven you of your sins and who is going to take you to heaven. It's out of love. You know, if we, the church, and I'm not talking just about here at Lake Oconee, but if we, the Christian church, can learn to love each other, our witness in this country and in this world would be phenomenal. People would push to get in here because they would like to know where that gentleness and that compassion and that discipline of the tongue comes from. Did your mom and dad tell you not to call people dumb. Mine did. Did your mama and daddy tell you not to talk evil about people? I want you to know mine did, and some of yours did. There was a generation ago 
when you just didn't say some things. And then you read James and he says, and you better get it out of your heart because that's how it gets to your mouth. And Jesus is saying to the people he's going to turn the church over to, even to you and I, there's something you need to pay attention to if we're going to be the church he wants us to be. Verses 23 and 24. What are we to do? Well, the first thing he wants us to do is to own up to wherever we are. We live in a society, and there's nothing new about this, that wants to blame somebody else for what's going on when, in fact, we ought to accept responsibility ourselves. No matter what somebody else says, no matter what somebody else does, we should be reporting to God and seeking to please Him. So let's not blame other people for our bad behavior. Until we own it, until we are repentant people, that healing can't take place. You know what they used to do on the Day of Atonement? The Jews would get a sacrificial animal, and they would hopefully pick out the best of those animals. didn't always happen. And they would bring that animal to the temple. And they brought it to be sacrificed in their place. And they understood from Old Testament teaching that through the shed blood of that animal, it was representative of the coming of a Messiah who would die for them. So they had good theological basis for what they were about to do. And then before they turned the animal over to the priest, they would put their hand on it. Almost as if to say, I am deferring my responsibility, my sin, on that animal, which is now going to die, that I might live. Isn't that an interesting practice? One might wonder, did all of the people who brought sacrifices to the temple and put their hand on that animal do that out of habit and ritual? Or did they do that because they really meant it? <coughs> Scripture teaches us that if you come to the temple, in our case, the church, and there's somebody that has something against you, and certainly if you have something against somebody else, that you need to leave your goat outside. And you need to go to that person and be reconciled to that person. Paul says it another way in 1 Corinthians. He says, if you come to communion, you need to examine yourself. doesn't say that your pastor or your priest doesn't say that the elders of the church he said, you need to examine yourself. you got all the help you need with the Holy Spirit, folks. And if there's sin in here, if there's anger towards someone, if there's a broken relationship, you need to not take communion until you come to terms with that. And you'll hear me say again today, if you are resolved to go do something about it when you leave this place, then it's hard to take communion with the promise you're going to go do something about it. To come to worship. To come to Sunday school. 
to teach in Sunday school or to stand in this pulpit and not be reconciled to God and think we can worship, we are kidding ourselves. Reconciliation is a precursor to meaningful worship. And it is a precursor to taking communion. If not, it is an affrontal to God. So what I would propose we do as we prepare to come to this table is that we get very quiet before the Lord and that you give the Holy Spirit an opportunity. And if there's something that you need to get straight with God and ultimately with somebody else, that you be resolved to do that during this quiet time. Take a minute or so and Close your eyes and go to the Lord.